0: You are listening to the Edu Salon podcast, a space for connection and conversation around education.
1: Each episode, Dr. Deborah Nedelitsky talks with a global education thought leader to provide insights into where education is now and where it might move next. Hello, and welcome to the EduSalon podcast, recorded on the lands of the Wadjuk people of the Noongar Nation, to whose elders, past, present, and emerging, I pay my respects. My name is Deborah Natalitsky, and today I'm excited to be speaking with Cameron Patterson. Cameron is an award winning educator who began his career as a history teacher in Canberra. Since 2007, he's held Director of Learning and Teaching roles, first at Shaw School in Sydney, and currently at Wesley College in Melbourne. Outside school, he works with Harvard's Project Zero as an online course instructor and as part of the faculty at the annual Project Zero classroom. He has taught in the Harvard Teacher Education Program and worked for Harvard's Principal Centre. He initiated and co-leads the Project Zero Australia Network, is a fellow of the Australian College of Educators and also of the Australian Council of Educational Leaders. He's been a Top 50 nominee for the Global Teacher Prize and featured on the Educator Hotlist. Together with John Andrews, we co-edited the 2019 book, Flip the System Australia, What Matters in Education? Welcome, Cameron.
0: Thanks so much, Deb. It's wonderful to be here and I really appreciate the invitation.
1: It's wonderful to have you here. I'm really excited to talk to you. I'm actually just reflecting that we actually did quite a lot of talking and collaborating before we actually even met. In fact, I think we may have edited the whole Flip the System Australia book before we actually met in person. So being remote online is probably our default position, really, sometimes with one another.
0: That's quite a bizarre story, isn't it? The fact that uh, us two and John Andrews edited Flip the System Australia, uh, largely by through Google Docs, Docs and DMs on Twitter. And the first time the three of us met was at the book launch in Melbourne, uh, when we were all face-to-face together. That was just an extraordinary moment.
1: Yes, it was. So I thought we'd start big picture because... I think sometimes when I read the work that you do or when I hear you speak, I think sometimes your ideas about education are quite radical, especially for someone like we are that works in you know, the independent school sector in Australia. So I'm wondering if you might be able to articulate, what do you see as the purpose of schooling? And I guess, is, has that changed for you or is that, has that always been a bit of a, a core purpose that you've carried with you throughout your career?
0: I think it's always been a core purpose. Alan Shaw is a recently retired principal here in Melbourne. And he was a head of department at the first school that I started teaching at. And he used to hold voluntary reading groups for staff after school. And I'm talking early 90s. And I remember reading articles and discussing them with him about the potential impact of technology in education. Um, So I've always had this fascination of what might be possible. In terms of your question about the purpose of schooling, and it's a huge question, and I don't know that anyone can simply answer that. But I will say this, I prefer to focus on learning rather than schooling. And sometimes I do worry that the two are almost oppositional in terms of the way that they come together. Uh, Richard Elmore was one of my professors at at Harvard and towards the end of his career, he was actually quite critical of the potential and purpose of US public schools, um, suggesting that they were becoming quite dysfunctional. So I paid close attention to his thinking and thoughts, but he's someone that encourages me to really focus on the potential of learning and what organisations and systems might look like to really encourage learning. As an example, he encourages educators to think about learning outside formal organisations. So an example that he uses is to think about the way public libraries around the world have had to reinvent themselves. And he encourages educators to use that as a possible model, a a possible example. He used to talk a lot about where learning was taking place outside formal institutions. He was fascinated, for example, with Sagada Mitra's work, about the slums in India, and the self-organised learning environments. So I bring that lens, and I think about schools and possibilities in schools. I'm going to take a, a, make a very left-field connection here. But when I was growing up, I used to drive down the Pacific Highway in Sydney. And there were advertisements up for cigarettes, you know, Winfield cigarettes, b so forth. And there was an organisation, I think it may just have been Sydney, called Bugger Up. And they came out late at night and they graffitied the cigarette billboards. Um, and their, their graffiti was hilarious. So you'd be driving down the Pacific Highway and you'd see what they were doing and it would always cause a giggle. Years later, I saw a heart surgeon being interviewed on a programme, something like Four Corners. And he was talking about his frustration about having to deal with people in heart surgery who had smoked for a large portion of their lives. And his job was to try and repair that when it was too late to repair. Uh, He ended up admitting in this interview that he was also one of the key leaders in the organisation Bugger Up. And he would go out late at night and graffiti the cigarette billboards because he actually felt that he was having more impact that way. Um, The takeaway for me is that I find it really helpful to think of education, not so much through an organisational lens, but through a movement lens. I think there's a lot that we can learn from, you know, an organisation like Greenpeace, for example. And we look at Black Lives Matter, we look at the Me Too movement. And we've seen this, Deb, in our Flip the System work. When ideas come together, they can be really powerful when they're coordinated and it doesn't have to be coordinated through an institutional lens.
1: That idea of social movements really interesting and Santiano Rincon-Guiados has talked about that on this podcast but I think I'm now flashing back to the Perth launch of the Flip the System Australia book which I think about quite often. So Adam Brooks, who's a Perth educator, he got up and said to the the audience, "We are the system. We in this room. So you know, we in education, people in schools who are leading schools or teaching in schools, are the ones who are actually within it and making and making decisions and with students in classrooms. And and I found that a really powerful comment because." That idea of bottom-up change is really what Flip the System Australia is all about. And I think, of course, there are parameters and there are restrictions and there are compliance mechanisms that are operating on schools and policy mechanisms and short-term political cycles and all those kinds of things. Sometimes when we talk, I'm the optimist and you're the uh, historian. (laughs) But, you know, I always think to myself, what can we be doing pragmatically but optimistically? And then how might we project out into the rest of the world uh, what it is that we'd really like to see?
0: Yeah, well, let's start with the the negative Cameron Patterson side compared to Deb. People were actually laughing at me last week about that. And uh, I know it is a tendency when both of us do speak together. I used to have a poster on my office wall, someone being interviewed for a role and and was being asked, I see you did well in school. You know, what real world world skills do you have? And the response was tests. I can take tests. Uh, One of my favourite teachers, Tina Blythe, speaks about the fact that Our job is not to prepare kids to do well in school. Our job is to prepare kids for life. And I think that's really important. There's no question the tests are important, particularly those end of year 12 exams. We want kids to do well. We take pride in our classes doing well and we want to prepare them to do well. I suspect year by year, they're they're losing a fraction of validity, year by year by year. Increasingly, we're seeing kids that are doing incredible things at early ages and are wondering what the point of sitting through getting information put towards them so they reproduce it in an exam, and I share those concerns. But school doesn't have to be like that. I think we've all seen through the last few years in particular through COVID the importance of the relational connections and how powerful and powerfully important that is for young people, teenagers in particular, to connect with their peer group and to connect with adults in a really positive and healthy way and for that to be a safe space for them. For educators to play the role of showing people that it's okay to hold multiple identities, that we don't need to fall in those really important teenage years into brackets of seeing ourselves in a particular way because that's the way the media might portray it at a time. The idea of, of schooling being somewhere that puts information into kids. There's a, a terrifying moment in the old movie that I saw in the US a decade ago, Waiting for Superman, where a, a, a cartoon-esque student's head is, is sort of wound open and the information is poured inside this young person. Uh, And that's the idea of schooling. They were making fun of it at the time. I I worry when I hear us as educators talking about needing to cover content. I I worry about us rushing through material for an external exam and body. We, We don't have to do that to our young people. It's our choice. It's our mindset. And helping educators see that it's our choice rather than something that is foisted upon us is something that really drives me in my work.
1: So I think what you're starting to touch on now is actually not just that gap between what learning is and where it occurs and what schooling potentially provides, but actually the professional efficacy and agency of teachers as well because I think you and I in our roles as heads of teaching and learning or learning and teaching would see teachers who would say, but I can't, they don't feel they have the permission to make those choices necessarily or to uh, resist the pressures that they might feel from parents, or from community, or from uh, sometimes students themselves. So, I wonder how you navigate that in your work. A lot of your work is around building a culture of learning in the whole school, as is mine. I am wondering, you know, what are your thoughts around that culture of learning for staff as well as for students, and that professionalism of teachers as seeing themselves as experts who can make those decisions in their own classrooms.
0: Yeah, great question. Thank you. Um, I think teachers are some of the most incredible people on the on the planet the difference they make daily is just extraordinary and the compassion and expertise they bring to their roles right around the world is incredible you use the word permission and i think that's really important for leaders in schools to be to be giving adults permission to try things to experiment i've spoken a lot about that over the years and i used to give teachers i, I do it recently i've done it recently sorry at a workshop i give them a little exit card and the card says this exit ticket gives me permission to try something new and it says in big bold letters i blew it um, i'm allowed to try something it ties into this whole idea of psychological safety as well you know the importance of taking a risk and trying things and we know how important that is for young people to learn in terms of the world they're going into uh, that entrepreneurial type thinking that the only way we can encourage that is if we're modeling that ourselves as adults but in terms of shifting and nudging adults perspectives, teachers perspectives on their work. Firstly, I think it's important to acknowledge that we'll never get everybody and we need to be comfortable with that. But it's about conversations. It's coaching, mentoring type conversations. It's one on one conversations. It's about about collaborative inquiry. It's you've used the expression holding ground before. And I heard that from Bob Keegan, one of my professors Mm. At Harvard, he speaks a lot about the importance of a holding ground for adults, where they're testing ideas. He speaks about a bridge, where you're halfway across the bridge and you're almost ready to go, but you're not quite ready to make that move yet. So you're able to move back to the safe side of the bridge, being ready to go head out again and try it, where somebody's holding their hand and ready to help you across. I like that metaphor. I find that helpful in terms of how we're operating, uh, in terms of helping people think about the potential of school in a slightly different way. The relational aspect is crucial, building trust, encouraging people to try things, to think about their work in different ways and to be comfortable doing that. And it takes time, it takes patience and every context is different. You need to learn the history, you need to learn the culture and you need to learn the people. Very dangerous to walk into an institution or organisation, whether it's schooling or elsewhere, with a, I know how to fix this mentality because the solutions will come within. And that's probably the key learning I've built up around leadership, is the importance of identifying the problem, pointing at the problem, and enabling the constituents to find solutions to that problem, rather than telling people what they should be doing.
1: There's loads in there. And interestingly, the person that I learned about the holding environment from, Ellie Drago-Severson, her... Her teacher was Bob Keegan. <laughs> yeah. So that's where that's where it's sort of that family tree came from of, of ideas. Uh, and it's interesting you talk about one-on-one coaching and mentoring-style conversations. I sometimes talk about changing culture one conversation at a time because you often can't do that stuff en masse. It actually needs to be incrementally one size fits one building the capacity of someone else through those sort of micro moments and and small conversations and building that over time. And I think the other thing you've talked about there is that real importance of context and not only knowing context, but trusting the people within the context to come up with the solutions. Because I think any, any leader who's had some success will be asked, oh, you know, will you bring that here? Or, you know, there's sort of an expectation that you might be able to somehow lift the solution that emerged in one context and and then lob it into your next context. And I think that's absolutely the the way to failure (laughs) is to um, try and fit a a solution from somewhere else, which may give you lots of things to learn about, you know, what might we learn from what you've done at your previous school, Uh, but that's not necessarily uh, the way that you'll get success in a new place.
0: Absolutely agree with that. And and two things I'll I'll jump off there. The first is back to Bob Keegan. Uh, He makes the really simple point in his book, In Over Our Heads is his book, In Over Our Heads. He talks about the fact that mental life has become so complex for adults today that all of us are in over our heads. And he talks about helping adults. He's encouraging us to think of learning beyond K to 12, that we're learning our entire lives. He talks about helping adults to think beyond an informational approach towards a transformational approach. And what he means or what I take, by that is the sense that so much of what we do is informational. It's sitting people down and talking at them. It's giving them information. Often it's trying to fix them. Yet he talks about a bucket suggesting an informational approach is putting more content in the bucket, more information or more water in the bucket. He says what we actually want to do is to make the walls of the bucket bigger, to reshape the bucket so that people can look at the world in a different way. So we're talking about mindsets. We're talking about shifting the way people see the world, their job, their role, young people teaching through a transformational approach. Now that goes well beyond a training approach and that's what fascinates me about the work that I do every day. David Snowden's idea, uh, he has the the carnivan framework. It's a a Welsh word, but without going into all the detail, he talks about the fact that so much of what happened from an organisational sense in the past was either simple or complicated but we're now moving into realms where most of what leaders have to do in organisations is complex, not complicated. So as an example there, when a a fire engine turns up to a fire to put the fire out and they jump out and they see the fire, they take their hoses out and they've been trained to do this and they put the fire out because it's a fire that they've been trained to put out and they know what to do. Right? That's a complicated problem, they've got the skills, they know how to do it, they've been trained when the same fire engine turns up to a fire and the fire is behaving in a way that they have never seen before, perhaps it's different materials, but they have not been trained how to put this fire out. So that becomes a case where the distributed leadership and the networking between the people on that team are crucial. And they have to use all of their know-how to put together a new way, an emergent way of putting this fire out. That's the difference to me between complicated, where we talk about good practice or best practice, I worry when I hear those terms too often because I think we should be talking about emergent practice, emerging practices. And when we talk about complex problems, or Ron Heifetz from Harvard Kennedy School would talk about adaptive problems, right? We're talking about adaptive leadership now. The leader is no longer the expert. The leader doesn't have the skills or the knowledge to be able to handle these complex situations. So we have to rely on the teams and we have to build diverse teams with different perspectives so that we have the ability to come up with these solutions. That when we're hit with COVID, when we're faced with pandemics or climate change or whatever else is coming our way, that we have the ability to come up with emergent solutions. I think that's what leadership is now.
1: So you're moving from being able to apply easy to apply frameworks to problems to actually needing to be okay with that uncertainty and ambiguity and to have trust that you've put together teams and you've got the capacity for the kind of thinking and action that will allow you to solve problems that you never saw coming. Absolutely. Q2020.
0: Less of an expert mindset, more of a learner mindset. You know, we started this podcast by talking about learning not schooling. We're seeing Mm -hmm. it in leadership.
1: And I wonder how it translates if we if we circle back to the learning part, you've talked a little bit about, you know, potential reinvention or reshaping of schooling and you know, that was, this conversation's come around to what leaders need, emergent practices and so on, but it also obviously affects what our students need and what we're preparing them for. What are you noticing or what are you trialling in your own place around how we might reshape schooling? And especially, I suppose, there's, the, there's some kind of radical thinking that you can think about in a blue sky way, but then there's also what's possible on the ground in a school
0: Oh, where do I start with that one? Let's start with the radical blue sky thinking. I think a lot of the timetables that we have in school are extremely restrictive. And the idea of five period or six period days reminds me of a factory. Uh, I'd love us to be brainstorming around ways that we could put together different models. The idea of of proceeding every 50 minutes or so to a different lesson to have more information put into you, that timetable dictates the pedagogy to some extent as well. And I love the trials that are taking place somewhere. There are certain schools trying different things. There are schools in Sydney who every second week, the uh, Year 12 have a, a blended model, a blended approach. Uh, other schools are giving Year 12's half days. Greg, uh, not Greg Whitby's school. Greg Miller. Uh, Greg Miller's school. Thank you, Greg Miller's school, St Luke's. Yes, is, is different models there for younger kids where students get to choose what they do on Wednesday mornings in particular, whether they're in study hall, whether they're doing homework. Whether they sleep in, they get to make choices around that. I don't think anyone's found a perfect solution yet, but I do like the fact that people are experimenting and modelling. There was a school I came across in Norway many years ago that had adopted a project-based learning approach, and they had one-period days. So your, your subject was one period, and the kids were engaged in project-based learning type approaches. I was fascinated. James Cook University used to run their biology classes as what they called situated learning on the barrier reef. So it was a two or three week class and everything took place in those two to three weeks. When I I was teaching in Sydney, I was a history teacher and I used to take tours, modern history tours to Vietnam and Cambodia, which was the course that I taught in year 12. And I always wondered what it would be like if I could get hold of my year 12 class and plonk them in Vietnam and Cambodia for two weeks, because the hours that were required would certainly have fit. And we could have been doing it, visiting the places we were studying and talking to veterans and living the history over there. So in terms of big sky thinking, that's something that springs to mind. In terms of what's more possible at the moment, I think we're seeing a really healthy crossover between conversations around well-being and teaching and learning. And I'm enjoying that. We saw, if we go to COVID and lockdown over the last couple of years, and Melbourne got hit, obviously, as you know, really badly through all of that. And I think we've learned a heck of a lot. The kids that really struggled through that were the, the kids that had difficulty with their self-regulation abilities. Kids that did really well in that were those that had significantly developed their ability around independence and agency. Um, some of them, the older students, loved the fact that they could look after their own fitness, that bells weren't coordinating them the whole time. They could wear what they wanted. They could eat what they wanted and they didn't have to wait for a bell to tell them when they were allowed to eat. So there were significant positives out of that. I'm not underestimating here, I don't want to downplay the impact, particularly in terms of mental health of the lockdowns and COVID, Uh, but Stephen Heppel is a professor from the UK and he talks about the fact that young people went through the depression and in the UK in particular, a lot of young people lived through the Blitz in London and he talks about the fact that they were the kids that went on to be the Beatles in the 1960s and to do all these incredible things in the 60s. So I do wonder how important it is to allow kids to experience sometimes some discomfort and to enable them to work through that so that they become more capable of dealing with difficulties in the future. And if what we expect in terms of future pandemics, climate change you know, in a, in a VUCA world is coming our way, maybe that's the key role of educators in schools today, to help students come to terms with radical shifts with seeing the world in a really disruptive way and enabling to work through that in a healthy, positive way.
1: And there's a lot there that you've talked about in terms of that integration of wellbeing and learning. You know, as you say, over the last couple of years, we've really realised the absolute need for both of those to coexist and part of that being keeping people well and supporting them, but part of it actually being personal self-regulation and those kinds of strategies that we can use. And the idea of immersion in Learning and project based learning, but especially student voice. I remember, I would say we wrote in the conclusion of Flip the System Australia, but really I remember these lines were were your voice coming through our our shared chapter around the, the idea of students as being not future citizens, but today's citizens, citizens now. So experiencing the world and having concerns about it, but also having aspirations for it. And they should be agents in the education system themselves. So, you know, that's something that you obviously feel really passionately about. And I'm wondering how else we might begin to allow students that not just choice of voice, but actually a sense of agency and control over their their learning and over uh, the sorts of people that they want to become and the sorts of changes they want to make in the world.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I'm a passionate advocate for student voice. Others prefer the expression student agency or student empowerment. At my previous school, I really enjoyed the opportunity to build... The students didn't like the term student voice, so they called themselves a student think tank. But it was a group that was put together to look at teaching and learning in the school. And the really positive, respectful way that they were able to discuss their learning and the teaching in the school without criticising teachers uh, was quite incredible, right? They're, They're very capable, these young people, of seeing how to express themselves in a really acceptable and appropriate way. So we built up this student think tank. I would give them pizza once a term. We'd sit down for lunch. They would raise ideas or issues or problems with me. I would share with them what school leadership were thinking about and ideas that we were coming up with, encourage them to get feedback from their peers, but I also encouraged them to build the model of their team a way that they would like. So they started to meet weekly in the library. They had minutes and notes and agendas and they organised their own leaders. We started to invite two of them, on a rotating basis to join our heads of department meetings. And I'll never forget that first meeting. Uh, I think the head at the time was on leave. And I think the deputy head was the senior leader that came in. And I hadn't forewarned him that there'd be two students in the meeting. Uh, I was the chair of the meeting. And he was a little surprised, taken aback, I might say, when he saw two students there. My position was that the students were there as equals. And the learning that was taking place at the time was a discussion about feedback. And we had a reading to prepare us. The students had done the same reading as well. So as we started to discuss the reading as a team, we were using a thinking routine. And then at the end of that, it broke into more open conversation. And the adults had done most of the talking. And then one of the heads of department said, you know, I'd really like to hear what the students have to say. And one of the students spoke up and said, look, you know, we're talking about feedback. He said, we really like it. You know, it's, it's nice when you hand out those surveys about your teaching every year. You know, it's nice that you ask us. We do feel, feel that, that, you know, it's nice that you're taking the time to invite our voice. But he said, you know what, we fill in the surveys and you collect them back in and we don't see anything change in your teaching. He said, what we'd really prefer is just to have conversations with you like this. You could have heard a pin drop for the next 30 seconds. It was one of the most powerful moments in my career. And that to me was the the signal of the power of student voice. And these kids went on to organise workshops to present at at conferences. The, The difference they made in the school was incredible. Uh, in terms of all sorts of little initiatives they ran left, right and centre. And the the key thing driving them the entire time was, how can we make learning better? One of the things that I really loved about that was that the young people that joined that group weren't necessarily the top achievers in the school. You You could have some of them, but then you could have some kids that really struggled academically. And we had one boy who had significant learning difficulties. And he came to some of our meetings and he said, look, we need more games. We need more play in the classroom. And to be honest, in terms of his learning, it was exactly what we needed to hear as teachers at that time. So the potential for student voice, I think, is, is huge. But I'm talking about going beyond the sort of food that goes into the canteen or reshaping their uniforms. I'm talking about looking at their schooling in really deep ways in terms of what might be possible at least asking them the question.
1: And you're also talking, I think, about more than surface or survey monkey forms kind of consultation with students as well, like inviting them to the tables with other leaders and other people at the school. And I think one of the biggest potential engine rooms of change is those across school, whether it's cross-sub-school, cross-teachers, admin, seeing everyone in the school community as having a voice and having a perspective that's worthwhile listening to and students being part of that rather than, as you say, like the, here's an annual survey or here's a place where you can give us your your feedback and we will take that under advisement, like really being part of the conversation.
0: Yep, definitely. I mean, I'm still very new at my new school here in Melbourne. But there's been two instances that I can think of. We're involved in the new metrics project through the University of Melbourne, looking at new ways to consider assessment. And Yong Zhao, Professor Yong Zhao from the US, has been a key advocate in that process and has been involved in several workshops. And he is very good at insisting that students participate. And he draws out their thinking in a really healthy, positive way. So to see that interaction, not just between students and teachers, but between students and researchers, I think is fantastic. And we're going through a process at the moment where we're refreshing our vision and values at Wesley here in Melbourne. And we're working with you and McIntosh from Notosh to do that. But we started with a design team and that design team, as you've indicated, was students, parents, teachers and general staff. And they were upskilled to conduct interviews and then conducted interviews across the diversity of our huge campuses and brought that back in terms of the different viewpoints around the school. And that has fed into the conversation about what our renewed vision values and strategic priorities might look like. It goes so much further, so much beyond sending out a survey and looking at the results.
1: And even what I think what you're saying there, and I've experienced it in strategic planning and also in master planning, where the students are not even just this is the student day or this is the student meeting, but uh, the students are there with others. And so those conversations are across the table with different stakeholders having the conversation together?
0: Yes. So at Wesley, where I'm at now, we're a very big school. We have three big campuses here in Melbourne. So each of those campuses is the size of another school. And each of those campuses has significant student voice initiatives. I'm in what's called a college role in that I look across all of these. So I don't have an enormous amount of contact day-to-day with students. And next year, we'll be introducing something along the lines of a, a student council where we're looking to get student voice into the decisions we make at college level about teaching and learning. So that rather than teaching and learning being something that's done to students, the learning is a process and we're talking about doing it with students. You used the word citizen a little bit earlier. Great project from Project Zero in the US in Washington DC was Children Are Citizens, looking at young people with that Reggio Emilia lens where they are treated as equals, as citizens, as participants, as responsible for the city and the democracy and their views, perspectives and attitudes are sought and built into that.
1: Fantastic. The other thing I'm interested to hear about is your Churchill Trust Fellowship Project, which links into all of these kind of things that you're talking about, which was around the creating and leading cultures of thinking based on Ron Richard's work. And one of the lines that struck me in the report that you wrote for that was that good teaching lives in the moments which I think draws together some of those ideas about the relationality, the responsiveness, the knowing the students in front of you and knowing your content and so on. But I'd love to hear more about that fellowship and what you took away from it.
0: Wonderful opportunity with the, the Churchill Fellowship. Unfortunately, you know, COVID, so my six weeks in the US didn't happen and it, it took place through Zoom interviews. So I, I lost the ability to get the, the sights and the smells, the immersion in US schools. But I got to interview somewhere between 40 and 50 unbelievable educators. And the whole purpose, the whole point behind it was to find people who had a great deal of expertise and experience with Ron Richard's creating cultures of thinking approach. And had a lot of experience inculcating this and developing this in the schools or organisations, museums or universities that they had worked in. So my interest wasn't so much the pedagogical approach. My interest was in the leadership approach. Uh, and teaching is such a nuanced profession that almost everything that we do is in the moment, right? We respond and we react in the moment. That teacher in a Year 9 class that has developed the ability to stand in a certain spot when a student looks a certain way because she knows that if she stands there, that that student is going to be, you know, back on task. Those little things that happen all the time when you've got a, a, a lesson prepared, and the kids arrive at the door. And as they arrive at the door, you look at them and you think the lesson I have prepared isn't going to work, right? That, that ability to respond instantaneously, those thousands of messages that teachers are getting all the time, which goes well beyond you know, being able to roll out a practice and give it to teachers. Teaching is so much more complicated than that. It was Richard Elmore that said, teaching's not rocket science. It's far more complicated than that. There were some very simple takeaways from my Churchill Fellowship at this point. In instituting change in schools and looking at teachers pedagogy, you need to be patient, you need to work slowly. You need to find the teacher champions and build those enthusiasts and work with them. Again, patience and time. Understand the culture that you're working in. Learn the history of the school. Uh, Be aware of context. But there were some beautiful moments and quotes from people that I interviewed. Jessica Ross is a researcher. At project zero but she also every couple of years goes back and spends a year as a humanities teacher in a a grade nine classroom and she spoke about the importance that when you're using visible thinking routines she said she just focuses on one and i think so many people take an approach like visible thinking and they want to try all the different tools so they try bits here and bits there and bits all over the place and then think well that wasn't very effective so i'm going to move on whereas what jessica did or does is she takes one visible thinking routine and she uses that one routine with her class for the entire year. So it becomes part of her practice. It becomes part of the student's vocabulary. She becomes an expert in that routine. And it builds a shared language and a shared culture within the class and the school. I found that incredibly helpful and powerful. My my favorite quote came from a museum researcher. Natalie Ryan works at the US Gallery of Art, and her expertise is in museum-based education. Have a listen to what she says here. She says, have a genuine desire to listen and learn. To see your role as not the authority. Be truly curious about your learners. Really care. Desire to listen and connect in an authentic way. See education as truly part of a civic effort. It's beyond passing a test. It's about creating humans. It's more lifelong. When someone sees you as a human, that's really empowering as a learner. There's so much that we can take from that commentary by Natalie, but when she talks about being truly curious about your learners, for me in a leadership role in school, the learners are the teachers, and they're the people I need to be curious about.
1: And I think the really key thing there is that that deep curiosity and really seeking to understand perspectives, and everyone's perspective, and everyone as a human and everyone as a learner deep curiosity and seeking to really understand perspectives and to see each person as an individual with capacity to be their best selves is really key to what you're talking about, which is leading teachers so that they can be with the students in their classrooms.
0: Absolutely. And I think my role or our role is viewing adults in schools as learners. And I think that's a common mistake that's made is not viewing the adults as the learners. If we don't treat adults as professionals, come back to that word agency from Flip the System, we're finished.
1: What do you think it looks like when we treat adults as learners? So we talked a little bit about coaching and mentoring conversation, but what what does it look and feel like in a school when you've got this culture of thinking and learning and it permeates beyond the classroom to the whole sort of school and staff community as well?
0: I come back to David Perkins' quote, phrase, which has really driven my thinking for a couple of decades now, and that is that learning is a consequence of thinking. Ever since I first heard him say that, I found that such a profound statement, and I think about the implications of that phrase. If learning is a consequence of thinking, well, how do we help people get better at thinking, and how do we know? And just starting with those questions, I think is really all we need right now to be thinking about thinking, to be making thinking visible. And as you've just been talking about, the importance of those relational connections and building trust with adults and with students so that we understand where they're coming from. It isn't a delivery system. It's one-on-one coaching, feedback, conversations, uh, being aware of who they are, the diversity of perspectives that are brought to the occasion. In my Churchill Fellowship, somebody at a school in Washington, D.C. spoke about the fact that when schools adopt these sorts of approaches and attitudes that the feeling in the school is karma. And they spoke about the positive feeling in the school. Now, that's something that, that I was really drawn to and I could make sense of. I, I really agree with it. It's about shifting the way that we see our perspective of what we do in the classroom and what we do in schools. That we're about building, creating capacity in people and the love we have for our subjects at senior school and high school, is a vehicle it's an avenue to enable us to do that the subjects themselves are not the purpose of schooling. it's the people that are in front of us that are the purpose
1: you brought me back around to my first question and I'm, I'm reminded of John Whitmore's comment about coaching that unlocking people's potential and the question that I often ask myself as a teacher but also as a leader is who's doing the thinking here and so seeing yourself as someone, whether it's a teacher or a leader who is helping others to think things through rather than, you know, thinking like mad so that you can come up with answers for them, I think is, is a sort of good default position when you're thinking about being someone, supporting someone in their learning.
0: Students are capable of so much more than we usually give them credit for. Students have the ability to assess their own work, to assess their peers, to give each other feedback. They have the ability to write their own reports. They have their ability the ability to teach each other Uh, that if we shift our perspective as teachers to think about our role as extending their capacity to be able to do that really well it's a nice lens for us to look at our our jobs a little differently they can set classroom rules right restorative behavioral practices almost anything that teachers can think of to complain about is a learning opportunity we're taking away from our students a lot of the workload concerns that we have as teachers rightly have as teachers Perhaps could be because we're depriving our students of learning experiences, that we like to see our students, young people, as not particularly capable because it boosts our sense of professional identity. And I wonder if we're doing too much for them.
1: And I think that also is something that comes out in your Churchill report, and it came out in my PhD research as well, where we actually need to tap into or teachers need to tap into their beliefs and values about what teaching is and what learning is before we change our practices and that understanding purpose, value, belief and what we're aiming for is going to change what we do rather than saying, here, do this.
0: Yep. love the, the words you just used, purpose, value, beliefs. I think that's what it's all about is being really clear about them as individuals. Stephen Covey talks about big rocks, identifying what our big rocks are and being really clear about them. And Ron Richard, the expression with me a couple of times that if you don't know what your big rocks are ask your students ask your students what what phrases you use all the time they'll tell you what your big rocks are.
1: Mm. We're uh, coming to the end of our time together Cameron so I'm going to move us to the last five questions that I call the enlightening round the first of which is what is something unexpected that many people might not know about you?
0: Uh, Okay love that question I've actually had it a few times before and my response is always the same Uh, I've been held up at gunpoint in Syria And I've fallen down a volcano in Guatemala. Don't ask me too much about the first one. Um, Let's just say got in the wrong car going out one night and uh, things didn't go well. But it was when Syria was a tourist attraction rather than the way Syria has ended up the last decade or so.
1: Wow. So when we talk about life-wide learning and learning that doesn't happen in classrooms, I'm sure both those experiences uh, provided you with plenty of uh, reflections. Good to see you. Good to see that you're here to talk to me today.
0: Um. <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to go too much further there, Deb.
1: No, that's that's fine. What about something that's currently on your desk?
0: Yeah, I always have piles of books on my desks. Uh, I've got a desk, multiple desks. I've got three campuses. We've got three offices. We've got a desk here at home. But at the moment at Wesley, we're looking at Year 10. So Year 10 is sort of a, an open space for us. And we're trying to work out what the vision is for Year 10, what it stands for, what it could be. Uh, in terms of being a lighthouse. Uh, So at the moment, I'm thinking through year 10 ideas. We've got feedback from heads of faculty and curriculum coordinators around wellbeing, about self-regulated learning, about study skills, about developing independence. They're all ideas that I'm playing with, and that's what's on my desk at the moment.
1: Excellent. I look forward to hearing where that journey takes you. You've named a lot of people as we've been talking today, but who is someone that inspires you in the work that you do?
0: I'm inspired by so many people. I don't know how to answer that quickly. Inspired by young people, by students, by the teachers that I work with, by my colleagues, Uh, I've been set so many brilliant leadership examples over a long periods of time through people I've worked with. But I will say, the favourite teacher I have ever had in my life uh, is a Harvard Project Zero researcher by the name of Tina Blythe. Uh, She's an extraordinary teacher, an extraordinary person, and I now work with her as an online coach through the the Project Zero network. She has taught me so much, not just through her knowledge, but through her manner. And when I interviewed her for my Churchill Fellowship, Fellowship, she spoke about the importance of relational connection. But she was talking about the fact that it's only through connection with others that we can really come to see ourselves. And she used words like bias, but we can only see our blind spots when we're conversing with others and discussing with others. So the importance of seeing learning as a collaborative team uh, approach, I think, is crucial. But Tina just has that that wonderful ability to care really deeply, uh, but also to drop those bits of knowledge gold dust exactly when you need it.
1: How about one thing that you've got coming up that you're excited about?
0: Yeah, that's an easy one. So this weekend, I'm visiting Euromalay for a week. Euromalay is our Indigenous campus uh, in Western Australia. So that's about four hours drive from Broome, go through Fitzroy's Cro- Fitzroy Crossing. Uh, we have a group of year 10s who are up there at the moment. I'll be visiting them for a week. As I said, I, I work at a school that's multi-campus. We have bits and pieces going on all over the place, but I love the fact that these sorts of experiential learning processes are available to our students. Uh, just a brilliant learning opportunity. So I will be living in the community and it's all about Indigenous connection and can't wait for that over the course of the next week.
1: I'm sure that'll be a really, really powerful experience for you and for the students. And finally, Cameron, if you were to distill your current thinking about education to its essence, and maybe we've already done that today, but what is one thought or resource that you would leave listeners with?
0: I find it so hard to reduce any of this to one essence. So thank you for shepherding my thinking all over the place this afternoon. Uh, One thought to finish with, I'll go to Neil Postman, uh, his book, teaching is a subversive activity. I'll just make the point that I think teaching done well is a subversive activity. I think teachers at their best are subversive. Teachers aren't professionals who are told what to do by others. Teachers have the professional ability to make those decisions themselves in terms of their expertise and in terms of the people who are in front of them. So my final comment would be that teaching is a subversive activity. I see a lot at the moment in terms of the poor media representation around teaching. And Nicole Mochler's has done some wonderful work on how that impacts on respect for teachers in a fairly negative way at times. But I think teaching is the best job in the world. You laugh every day. You get so much ability to make a difference in people's lives. And things are changing constantly and it's healthy and it's emotionally draining at times and exhausting, but it's such a good way to keep grounded and think about where we're going in this world and what sort of impact we're having. I can't think of a better job. I can't imagine that there's too many young people listening to this podcast, but if there are, I encourage you to think about teaching. My second principal that I worked for, Bob Grant, encouraged all of us annually to find a student that we thought would make a good teacher and encourage them to become a teacher or to think about it post school. And that's part of my practice that I've kept ever since. Teaching is the best job in the world. I love it.
1: That's fantastic! What well, gets us out of bed in the morning, and what a wonderful note to end on. Thank you so much, Cameron, for joining me today on the Edgy Salon.
0: Thank you so much, Deb, and congratulations on such a successful podcast. Great idea. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Edgy Salon podcast. You can join the conversation by subscribing to this podcast and sharing it with your network by giving this podcast a rating or review and by connecting with Deb
1: and her guests on social media.